Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author, and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. This is a special episode of Write, Publish, and Shine, all about writing what you're meant to be writing, working on fit that way versus writing what you think you should be writing. Four writers who are alumni of my Lit Mag Love course are here. You'll hear from Ellen Chang Richardson, a poet, writer, and editor of Taiwanese and Cambodian Chinese, or Chinese-Cambodian, she puts in brackets, Descent, whose writing has appeared in The Fiddlehead, Valum Contemporary, and Watch Your Head, among others. Among those others are Room Magazines. You'll hear about that in more detail coming up. Hege A. Jacobson-Lepree is a Norwegian-Canadian translator and writer. She had her first story published in English in 2013 and has since chosen that as her writing language. And Laurie Sebastian Nudi is a writer and teacher and former managing editor of the Fertility Matters Canada blog. She has published in the New Quarterly, the Hamilton Review of Books, and the inaugural issue of Nurture, and you're going to hear about that experience up first in this episode. And our fourth guest today is Angela Wright, a writer, historian, and political analyst based in Toronto, Canada. Her creative nonfiction has appeared in The Fiddlehead, The New Quarterly, and The Brooklyn Quarterly. She has performed her poetry in venues across the United States and Canada, including Canada's National Arts Centre. These are four writers who actively submit their work, who persist at it, and who publish. Among what they have in common is that they each found their lane in writing. I'm using scare quotes around the word lane there, so insert your metaphor as you choose. And that lane gave them the traction to publish in LitMags and succeed by their unique definitions of success for their writing. They didn't necessarily start out in their lane, so you're going to hear from them also about finding that sweet spot, that place in what they are writing and where they are submitting fits. Here first is Laurie Sebastian Nudi on when she first started submitting. Well, when I first started submitting, I would look at the journals and then try to see if my work could fit with these journals. It was more journal focused. And I would either write to a theme, a call out, or I would see if any of my work fit and I had zero success. (laughs) Either I didn't publish the piece or I didn't even finish writing it. You know, like I remember Room had a food theme. I'm like, okay, let me, I want to get in Room. So I'm going to write something about food. I didn't end up finishing the piece. And I've had a few rejections to that way. But then I started learning, no, I need to write what is inside me, what is calling to come out and then see what journals might be interested in my work. And then I had a lot more success that way. Because the work that I was creating to have published in a certain journal, it was forced. So that really changed my focus. And I don't submit to a ton of journals. Like I really admire those writers who submit 100 a year or 100 rejections a year. That's their goal. But I don't work that way. And I think that's awesome. But my personality, I get a little bit too attached to my work. And so I really kind of think, oh, who would be interested in this? Like, What journal publishes stuff like this? What editor might be open to this? And so 
as a result, it takes me a lot more time because I think a lot about it first and then I let it out into the world. So I submit to both print and online. Luckily, I've had success in both. But I do submit to a lot of smaller online journals with not like a huge following. And they have amazing editors, like either they're just starting out, you know, great writers behind them, great editors. And I think even though they're smaller, you get exposure online and you meet like the other writers in that journal online, of course, and you start following them on Twitter. So you kind of build community that way. I have submitted to some of the bigger ones, a lot of rejections, but a few acceptances from the bigger kind of Canadian print journals. I so resonate with what Lori said about writing what is calling to come out of her instead of writing what she thinks Lit Mags want. And listen now to see what happened when she waited until her lane was literally created. So I wrote a piece in 2017 in Nicole Bright's Spark Your Outlier story. And, you know, we worked on it together. And I remember her saying at the end of us working together, the piece is strong. It was a hermit crab essay. And she said, you know, you've nailed it. There is a home out there for this piece. So, you know, that's the first time I got really kind of glowing feedback from a writer I really admired. So I just started sending it out, you know, and I sent it here, I sent it there, I sent it to a contest and it got rejected about five or six times over a period of like two years. And I thought, I know you're told that after, you know, three or four rejections, you should probably revise it. But I believed in the piece and I had Nicole's feedback to back it up. And I thought maybe these journals just weren't the right fit. And so I just left it and I didn't revise it. And then at the end of 2019, I saw on Twitter, it was a new journal starting up, a U.S. journal, and it's called Nurture, a literary journal. And the theme is the complexities of care. And then a bell rang because that piece I wrote, it was a hermit crab that I wrote as notes to a babysitter which in this case was my child's first babysitter, which was the embryologist in the IVF lab. And I wrote about those complex feelings of those first five days that they had to live outside my body and how that was a loss for me. But at the same time, I was so grateful to live in an era where that's possible. So it was about the complexities of care. And I thought, okay, I'm going to submit this to this journal. And I got an acceptance pretty quickly. So that took about two years, about five or six rejections, but it really was just waiting it out and seeing almost like the journal had to exist for this piece to find a home because it fit the theme perfectly. Yeah. And it was published in their inaugural issue and, and I was thrilled to bits. And then the editor, Colleen Rothman, she was amazing. She did do a few copy edits. So it wasn't like it was perfect, perfect, but she didn't change form. She didn't change theme. And so it found success that way. So I'm glad that I didn't go back and think, okay, something is inherently wrong with this piece. I need to change it. I believe in it. I'm going to see what happens in the future. That's the direction my writing is going. I have to spend that extra layer of really looking into the publication, of really looking what the editor has published before or the editor writes herself or himself and, you know, seeing, okay, is this a fit before I send it? So an extra step, but I think in the end it's worth it. You can find Lori's piece notes for the babysitter on Nurture's website. And I link to it in the show notes. 
Ellen Chang Richardson's story starts with starting to believe in herself as a writer. It was a meeting with her friend Sam Hyatt of the Rights Factory, who told her about Room Magazine, where I happen to be an editorial collective member. And by the way, Ellen is now too, but that's jumping way ahead of the story. So here's what happened with Ellen at that meeting with Sam. You know, it'd always been a pipe dream of mine to write and be a writer, whatever that means. You know, so we went for coffee and he was like, look, this is really, you've got talent, but if you want to get published, here are some strategies that you need to do. You need to like, for example, spend the next year, your first year, polishing your work, submitting to literary journals. And then he had name dropped Room. And he was like, if you don't know them, Room magazine is the leading feminist magazine in Canada. You should read their work, read their issues, familiarize yourself with what they do. And if you can get published in it, submit to them and get your work in. And I was like, okay. And I didn't know if I had anything that might fit. And I was sending room all my best shit and getting rejected over and over and over again. I was submitting to poetry at the time. And so every single time there was an open call for submission, I'm like, all right, put together five poems, send this bloody thing in. Another rejection. (laughs) And then another rejection. (laughs) And I was like, okay, that's fine. I'm just going to keep submitting. doesn't matter. Because in the back of my head, I could hear Sam Hyatt being like, best feminist literary magazine in Canada. Get your work in there if you want to be at that echelon, you know? So Ellen, like Laurie, started with a focus on the journal itself, in her case, wanting to publish with Room. But then she started digging into her personal history in her writing Finding a story that only she can tell. Here's what happened. So my father is a survivor of the Cambodian genocide. And, you know, we have a very fraught relationship. I started researching into the psychology of surviving something as traumatic as that. You know, read Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Great book. He actually looks at surviving trauma like that from a very clinical psychology point of view because I wanted to understand EQ development and that sort of thing and it's still a project that I'm working on I also wanted to learn more about the Cambodian genocide because no one teaches you that in school it's not taught hardly anywhere you know I went to high school in Shanghai and I had a very international curriculum but it was still very American oriented so I didn't learn about it either so I found this book called the Pol Pot Regime Buried in Black Squirrel Books in Ottawa, which is an amazing bookstore and cafe in the capital region. And I started reading this, and it's about the rise of the Khmer Rouge. Well, it's a doozy. Then I started sort of trying to sort through my own issues by writing my story tangled up with my father's story or what I've been told is my father's story. So the Paul Pot regime was like founded on lies. And I feel like a lot of that has trickled into at least how my dad deals with surviving it. So, you know, I I started writing this, but I'm a poet. At the time I was reading Sarah Peters, I Become a Delight to My Enemies. And it's a novel that kind of blows up the idea of what form might look like. There are no page numbers. There's no like chapters as we know them. There's marginalia all over the place. And so I was writing this work on the side and thinking to myself, well, 
these are clearly like nonfiction stories, but I'm a poet who works very strongly with spatial form and concrete form on the page. And I'm like, I don't want to lose that because I'm trying to fit my work into what I know creative nonfiction to be so far. So I was like, okay, screw it. I'm just going to play around. So I ended up writing a creative nonfiction essay two actually, um, that fits side by side. And I'm still working on the project. It's kind of taking a pause, but I wrote them in the way that I write my poetry. So I submitted that simultaneously to Room and the Fold program. And Room wrote me back in like, I think it was a couple of weeks, which is a really short time frame. And they're like, we want this. The Fold wrote and was like, I want this. And I'm like, uh... <laughs> So Ellen went from multiple rejections to having two places asking to publish this one piece. That is the magic of finding your unique voice and story, and also of connecting your writing to bigger events in the world. The Fold asked if she had anything else for them to read, and she produced a companion essay for the original submission, publishing both. I love that her writing both honored her family's story and also the form she intuited for her writing. You can find her piece Tundra Mist online in the Fold program, which I link to in the show notes, and her work Storm Surge appears in the print issue of Room 44.2, and I also link to that issue in the show notes. Next, we'll hear from Hege, who also persisted with the piece until it was published with Room Magazine. And side note, there are a lot of us reading for the magazine, and I do not believe I was a reader for any of their submissions. Here is Hege A. Jacobson Lepree on what happened. My relationship with Room Magazine started in July 2014. I have since then sent one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And on my 11th attempt, I did get a piece in. So that is quite a list of attempts. I actually have one piece that I'm still submitting after more than 20 rejections because it has received positive rejections almost everywhere. And I think it's just a question of finding that one place. It was a piece that got uh, personalized rejections from the New Yorker and it still hasn't been picked up anywhere. It's been going around since 2017 and I have now, I think I'm on my 32nd submission and I just sent it out to two different places. By the way, I also link to Hege's publication, which happens to be the same publication as Ellen's. Again, I was not editing that issue, nor did I read for that issue. So it's just a happy coincidence that they were both published at the same time. Hege's belief in her writing, that believing in the work, I think happens more readily when you're truly writing what you're meant to be writing. When you found your luminous voice and it's something that Hege really has going for in her work in general. Hege also has a pretty methodical approach to gauge good places to send her work, and she also had to adjust her strategy and expectations about lip mags during these pandemic years. Okay, since I write in every genre there is, and from quite traditional to very experimental, I have tailored lists of places where I send certain pieces. Usually when I finish a piece, I will have an idea of which pile it goes into. So I send out to most of the Canadian ones, I think it's a three to four 
ratio of American versus Canadian ones, just because there's so many more American ones, and especially for stuff that is quite experimental. And some of them have shorter turnaround times. So I will sometimes choose when I need a quicker response, I will tailor to a list where I know they have a shorter response time. That has backfired a few times when I did it during the pandemic, because some of those truths that I had learned were truths were no longer so during at least the first year of pandemic, where some of the readers and editors seemed to fall apart, were not able to produce what they usually did. So those things happen. I am pulling up now my list of places where I submit to. So pretty much every Canadian one that doesn't require to mail your submission in, because that usually is a huge showstopper for me. So I don't get around to it. So I just don't even aim at those. Then I usually start on top. I mean, when I have something that is that I think is a fit, I will send it to the New Yorker because who am I to stop myself from something, even though I know that with very high, high likelihood, they will not accept me. After that, I will go for the top Canadian ones if I haven't been accepted or submitted very recently, like Fiddlehead, Grain, The New Quarterly, The Malahat, Prism, Room, etc. So what I figure will be top my list will depend on both the exposure, whether they pay or not, how they ratio for certain prizes like the Canadian Magazine Awards or the Pushcart or stuff like that. So it's a long list and there are some that I, where I like the, the answers I get better. So I tend to send to those more frequently. One of those is the Missouri Review where I haven't been accepted yet, but I keep trying and they usually give me a nice personalized note for whatever I sent them. I have been publishing Grange. I haven't sent stuff there for a few years, but I did submit through Submittable at that point. The only two that I know require to mail stuff in are Fiddlehead and the New Quarterly at this point. There may be some others, but those are the two. And then there are a bunch of American ones that I have largely edited out of my list because it's, uh, it's too much of a hassle. And especially you know, if I can't get any kind of feedback from them because they require for me to send a self-addressed envelope with their stamps, which is at this point impossible. I did have a few at a certain point. I don't anymore. So there's some that would be a fit for some of my work where I don't send anything at this point because of the demand of having a hard copy sent and the inability to get feedback if there is any because they require you to do stuff you can't do in a pandemic. You'll recall Laurie Sebastian Nudy saying earlier that she looks closely at editors who might be a good fit for her work. And Angela Wright is another writer who finds really looking closely at editors most helpful. I found it's a lot easier to research the editor and try to fit something to the editor rather than trying to fit something to the particular publication. Because if you know what I've done, especially on Twitter, if you see there's certain topics that they like to talk about, Twitter's a really good place to to find places to submit, especially editors for Catapult. They'll say, I want to read certain pieces. Here are the types of, here are the topics that I really want to read. Here are some of the essays that I've worked with before that I've helped publish and I really like them. And so it really gives you a good idea 
of what might be successful. So I found it's really important to be strategic and yeah, not just blanket your complete piece anywhere because there's going to be a lot of places that will just not like it. Even if it's great, maybe that editor doesn't like that particular topic. Maybe they feel like that the form has been overdone. Like it could be a lot of different reasons why they might not accept it. So I would say to do as much research on the publication, but also especially on the editor before you submit. I'm interrupting these four luminous writers, all of whom are alumni of my course called Lit Mag Love, to let you know that if you've benefited from what you've learned in this or other episodes of this podcast about writing and submitting your work to journals, you might be a good candidate for my course that is all about publishing in journals. The Lit Mag Love course will help you get a big yes for your writing from a literary journal. The five-week course runs twice per year. Our first session in 2022 starts February 1st, so you have time to plan your course sessions for the new year. Lit Mag Love comes with lots of support and feedback. You can learn all about the Lit Mag Love course, find out what writers say about working with me, and join the course waitlist to get exclusive enrollment offers at rachelthompson.co slash litmaglove. Now back to the conversation with four luminous writers who are all alumni of the Lit Mag Love course as they discuss finding their lane in their writing. Angela also talks about a specific piece she was writing that really required the help of another editor. And I most appreciate how she sees editors as collaborators in her work and how she looks for that extra layer of care and sensitivity when she's writing about communities that are not her own. Listen to this publication experience Angela had with editor Jenny Ferguson at Carte Blanche that was crucial to her piece, Looking at Australia, Looking at Me, and its success. Because I know that Jenny Ferguson is Indigenous, and that piece was also very much about what I learned about the history of Indigenous people in Australia, and how I essentially went to Australia to study trauma. And I was looking at the history of convicts in Australia, which is more widely known, and then I kind of tripped over, or I might say fell flat on my face in this kind of story of intergenerational trauma of of Indigenous people. And so because I knew that she's Indigenous, I was like, this would be a good place to put this piece because I would want to work on this piece with an editor who's Indigenous to ensure that there's a good enough sensitivity and I'm making sure that I'm, you know, approaching it. But also she would be able to give me good feedback in terms of kind of how I'm understanding and working through some of these issues. You can find Angela's piece, Looking at Australia, Looking at Me, in the show notes for this episode up at rachelthompson.co slash 54. Angela also found her writing best fit with Lit Mag's looking for pitches or excerpts of her writing before she even wrote the full piece. Also note how Angela's description of her writing is an example of, like Ellen, digging into her personal history to find that story that is uniquely hers, in this case, about her grandmother. I was very lucky in the first journal I was ever published in. It was called the Brooklyn Quarterly. And they were actually accepting full pieces, but also kind of 
not pitches, but summaries or an excerpt of a full piece. And so I had this idea for the essay that ended up being called Looking for You to Find Me. And it was about my grandmother and my relationship with my grandmother. She passed away 10 days before I was born. So I had this idea and I did not have a complete idea for the essay. I had no idea where it was going to go, but I workshopped it. I was in a writing group at the time and I workshopped my first page with my writing group and they are like, this is great. And so I sent that in and then the editor was like, this is great. Can you send me four pages? Then I wrote four pages and she's like, okay, this is great. Yeah, we're going to accept this piece. And so I, because I got that early acceptance, that was like my first kind of major submission when I started writing creative nonfiction. I used to write poetry, but I was very unsuccessful in poetry. And so that gave me a lot of confidence to keep submitting. And it was very similar when I submitted to Catapult. Catapult is also good because they will accept pitches as well. And so I found that I have been a lot more successful in submitting to literary journals that will take excerpts or that will take ideas as opposed to some writing a full draft and then submitting. So I tend to look out for literary journals that will accept ideas or pitches or excerpts. I also find it's easier to handle because you're not putting a lot of work in upfront. You're kind of mitigating, I would say, even the rejection. Rejections is less painful if it's just one page as opposed to if it's something that you've been working on for, for six months, you know? Yep. One of my essays that I did spend, I would say almost two years on it, it ended up getting published in The Fiddlehead. And my first submission was to The Prisms. It was one of their literary contests. And it was not successful, did not make the long list or anything. And I actually knew the editor. I'd worked with Alicia Elliott. She was editing that journal edition. And she had asked me, she had said, oh, you know, if you have any work, feel free to submit it. And so there was this essay that I had that was done. And I was like, okay, I'll just send this. And, you know, I worked on it for the past two years and she ended up accepting it. So that was, yeah, that was also, I would say, very lucky. But I also, because I had worked with her before, she did know my work. And so I think that was helpful as well as getting an acceptance to the fiddlehead. Another little fun synchronicity side note, you can hear that same story of acceptance from the other side, from Alicia Elliott, the editor's perspective, when she talks about why she accepted Angela's piece way back in episode 15 of this podcast. Now, here is a little bit more of what Angela had to say about going the pitch route for her writing. I actually really enjoy going the pitch route because I find it's very helpful, especially when you have an idea and you kind of have a roadmap to where you want to go. I find having an editor early in a process, once working with you, right with you know your first draft can be very helpful in terms of giving you feedback. I mean, the piece that I wrote, I would say a lot of the pieces that I wrote, I also wrote a piece for the new quarterly with Alicia Elliott. She was the editor. And that started to off of me sending her essentially a tweet because she was relatively well-known, but still not as well-known as she is now. And I'd read something that she had written in Room Magazine. And I was like, wow, this is great. And I think I just tweeted about it. And then she responded to my tweet and then I sent her a DM and was telling her how I had this idea 
about I wanted to write an essay about, you know, the first Indigenous teacher that I had. And she's like, wow, that sounds so great. And then she came back to me later and was saying, you know, I'm editing this special series for the new quarterly. I would love to read this essay that you're writing. And I had no real idea of where I was going to go with it. But then I kind of just typed up a draft. And, you know, had I not worked with her through the process, that essay would not have been as good as it was. And so I find it can be really helpful, especially when you're working with an editor that is caring and careful and very understanding of what you're trying to do. I find the work that you end up doing can be very strong because you can avoid all of the naysayers that might come through in your early drafts, especially if you're workshopping a piece amongst people that you don't do not know very well, or if it's like you're workshopping it in like an actual workshop and you can avoid the racists or the sexists or, you know, all those types of people who might have very unhelpful comments about your work. So if you can work directly with an editor, especially on very sensitive and personal topics, I find it's very, very helpful. I also find too that I learned a lot from the editors, from their feedback, right? In terms of one thing I remember Alicia saying to me, you know, you should not kind of presume what people are thinking in not creative nonfiction. And so she's like, you can't say they're thinking this or you have to kind of judge by, you know, how they're acting, you know, what they could possibly be thinking, but you really cannot put their thoughts down because it's creative nonfiction. And I was like, yeah, that's actually really good. It was a good lesson to learn. So yeah, I find you can pick up a lot of very helpful tips when you work directly with editors through the drafting process. That essay ended up being published in Black Writers Matter. Notice how working with editors also helped Angela hone her writing more, which is what we heard also in Laurie's experience with her publication in Nurture. So there you have four writers sharing some of their specific publication journeys that brought them closer to the writing they are meant to be writing, that luminous work that gets published in the right place. Let's now look closely at four ingredients that will help, I believe, any writer find their lane, i.e. the writing you're meant to be writing and the places where your work is meant to be published. The first ingredient is patience. If you listened to my last episode with Melly Walker, you heard me say a mantra that I use for my writing, in my own time, in my own way. These four writers all heed this edict. Hege has 32 submissions and counting for just one piece. Lori kept going because she believed in a piece even before the right journal to publish it existed. And one of Angela's essays found a home after she worked on it for two years. And here's Ellen Chang Richardson again, talking about how she avoids being hasty. Sometimes, you know, writing ebbs and flows. Sometimes we take time too. Like right now, I'm, for instance, I'm in a generating phase. Like I have maybe five poems that are ready to go out to places and like, one creative nonfiction essay. And that's not a lot. (laughs) And for a little bit, I was like, oh, you got to submit, submit, submit. And I'm like, you know what? It's okay to say no. It's okay to fight. And when you see like a call for submission from a journal that you genuinely want to be in, you're like, oh my God. But if you don't have work that fits it right now, like don't be hasty. Another submission period will open up again. (laughs) Be okay with being patient. 
like part of my process is the work that hits the slush pile for literary magazine is done outside you know like as much as it can be before the final editorial tweaks here and there but like it's a polished piece it's not rough around the edges it's like read ready uh, writers should keep in the back of their mind when they're submitting is like have something that's read ready like there's some magazines that like that raw roughness but most from my understanding of it prefer something that's like not a draft the second ingredient in our list of four ingredients to finding your lane is discernment all four writers are very selective about who will get to read and then publish their work They do not send their workout scattershot. My personal path to getting published is kind of very research-oriented, like my work itself. I actually subscribe to multiple different literary journals that have piqued my interest for whatever reason, or I get copies from, like, friends. You know, I pick something up from a newsstand that looks interesting to me or something like that. And I just start reading a variety of different literary journals, either in print or online. And I try to always get a feel of the work that's being published in those journals. And anytime I submit to a journal, it's entirely because I either have a piece or two that I think might fit their voice Or there's like a specific thematic call that I have a piece that I think might fit as well. I'm not always successful. I haven't changed my my method because I think, you know, from the other side, like editors and slush pile readers appreciate when a writer has done research into the publication before just instead in lieu of like form submitting everywhere. They really appreciate that because... You know, it's like you end up reading something that fits with the journal. The other thing that all of these writers do is work at taking feedback for what it's worth. Here is Angela on learning this discernment. Not everyone understands your work, and some people can be malicious. You know, they might be jealous of your work and so give comments that are not helpful. They might just not like you personally. They could be racist. They could be sexist. And so not all feedback is helpful. It's important to, I would say, if you have a choice to only share your work and take feedback from people who you respect or who you know understand at least what your work is and what you're trying to do, because unhelpful feedback can make your writing worse or can make you feel very bad about yourself. The third on this list of ingredients to find your lane as a writer is to define your own success. Listen to the success Hege finds when she balances out the slow process of submitting her writing to Lit Mags with instant feedback on her writing from a large community of readers. I have a very nice haiku community that I participate in every day. And the nice thing about haiku is that it is always a work in progress. It is short and you can rework it a hundred times. And it gives you a feeling of having accomplished something. And we sometimes critique our works and sometimes we even go into a Japanese tradition where you write a haiku or senryu in response to something somebody else writes. 
I think that kind of community where your text dialogues with somebody else's text, even though most of my writing is not haiku or poetry, is really helpful. The feeling of being in a community and a writing community where you actually exchange the words you write there live really helps me. I do that every day. I participate in a haiku challenge every day. So I have that ongoing thing and I sometimes will use a sentence from a haiku or senryu. I realize afterwards, well, doesn't work that well as haiku, but it would be a really good opening to a flash fiction piece. I get going, I get into exchange mode where I exchange my ideas, not just sit on them and mull and ponder who may I say in this. They're sent out instantly. And I do it all the time. And I sometimes edit that one piece later that day. And I discuss with others whether the first or the second was better. And it's a really good way for me to get past that threshold where I think that, no, no, this is not good enough to send out and I'm not ready. On Twitter, I'm every day out there putting my work out. Even though that is not considered publication by most, it is part of this literary community and sending things out and getting response to that. And for me, that really works. And it's helped me develop some high concern poems that I, in the later rework, have been published with and received a lot of feedback. And you get lots of feedback. That's also the thing. More than when you send other stuff out, you get feedback right away. I've been doing that every day for three years almost. And it's a way to see both how you improve and how you improve through dialogue and through sending your stuff out in the world. If I'm really lucky and it really strikes a chord, I will have 2,500 people visualizing my short poem in a day and a half. And defining your own success also means defining the role writing plays in your life. Here's Ellen again. When I found writing, I was like, you know what? If I succeed in whichever small way that I define my own success in this, then I will be happy. There are hard moments. There are moments where I'm like, what am I doing? But for the most part, I find my writing to be self-care. It's how I work through a lot of stuff. You know, like if I'm frustrated at work, for instance, and I'm like, what is the point of even working here? And right now writing doesn't put a roof over your head. So why don't you go to work, do your thing, make some money, go home and write. Finally, finding your lane takes courage. Here is Lori again on how she finds courage from other writers. I think I do go back and read some of the essays that have had the most impact on me, because if that author didn't get the courage to submit that, I would never have read it and never have been moved by it. So that actually does help me quite a bit. I talk to other writers too. People, like we said before, you know, who are, have skin in the game the way we do and, and they get it. I don't usually talk about it with non-writers because they're like, why are you telling that story about yourself? I love what Laurie says about how other writers just get it. And non-writers are like, what? What are you doing? So you heard more mentions of writing community from the writers in this episode who are all vibrant parts of my course community. 
And you'll hear more from these four writers in the next episodes, a part two of our conversations, which will be all about community and resilience. They will share mistakes they made submitting to LitMags and how they each manage the inevitable rejection that comes with being in the submission game. So look for that episode out in two weeks. My LitMag Love course will help you get a big yes for your writing from a LitMag you love. Get ahead in your plans to publish in 2022 by joining the waitlist today. You will get special enrollment offers if you do. Learn more about the course and get on the waitlist at rachelthompson.co slash litmaglove. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Thompson. You can learn more about the work I do to help writers write, publish, and shine at rachelthompson.co. When you're there, sign up for my writerly love letters sent every other week and filled with support for your writing practice. Our podcast production assistant is Tamara Jong, who patiently helped gather all the interviews for this episode. Tamara is an incredible literary citizen and inspires us all with her support of writers in our community. Thanks, Tam. If this episode encouraged you to keep going and persist with your dreams to publish in LitMags, I would love to hear all about it. You can tag me on social media. I'm at Rachel Thompson on Twitter and at Rachel Thompson author on Instagram. And I'd love it if you were to tell other luminous writers about this episode. You can do this by sending them to the podcast at rachelthompson.co slash podcast or tell them to search for Write, Publish, and Shine wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you for listening, and I encourage you to find your lane, that sweet spot where you're writing what you're meant to write and publishing in the places you're meant to publish. My guest spoke to us from Oslo, Norway, from the land of the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation in what is colonially known as Ottawa, Canada, from the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples in so-called Toronto, Ontario, and the traditional territories of the Erie, Neutral, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississaugas in what is colonially known as Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Myself, I am a guest in the South Sinai, Egypt, on lands historically and presently occupied by the El Tirabin Bedouin. <laughs>